right. End of July. Um, I have to apologize. <clears throat> um, I have my radio voice this morning because my family and I were just blessed to get back from an eight-day, 2,200-mile round-trip driving vacation to Mount Rushmore. And so while that buoyed me and boosted me emotionally, it certainly took its toll on me physically. So um, nevertheless, I'm glad to be here. I'd like to start out by taking us back to December 1914. It's the end of the last golden age of exploration around the world. And Sir Ernest Shackleton and a group of about 27 other people are setting out from England to sail down to Antarctica to be hoping to be the first team to cross the Antarctic continent um, with dog sleds. And so they set out on this long journey and they soon, when they get to the Waddell Sea down in Antarctica, they soon realize that they are not going to be able to complete their goal. They're not going to be the first team to cross the continent. And they, their ship is quickly, the ship Endurance, is quickly stuck in the ice. Massive icebergs that, um, above the water, don't look very intimidating, but go, you know, tens of um, thousands of feet beneath the surface, tens and hundreds of thousands of pounds of ice pressing in on their ship. They're stuck in their ship for months. And then finally they realize that their ship is about to be broken up and crushed, so they have to abandon ship. And so they wait on this giant glacial iceberg for months in addition to that, floating. And they realize finally that their stores of food are running out, they, there's barely been any sunlight. Some of the members of the party are on the verge of insanity. And so as a last-ditch last effort at survival, six of these men set out in a 22-foot open sailboat trying to cross 800 miles of Arctic um, Ocean to get to an outpost where they can get help. This six-person team in this little boat are going to eventually encounter a hurricane that will sink a, a 500-ton steamer ship nearby. While that six-person team is traveling on that perilous journey, the remaining 22 members of the party are simply forced to wait on Elephant Island, a barren outpost where no one is around. They either will wait for a rescue or wait for a slow, unraveling death. And it's against that backdrop that we turn to Psalm 27 in verse 14 this morning, where David writes about trusting in God through many trials, through trials that we in the 21st century can relate to. David writes at the end of that psalm, he concludes it by saying, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, be courageous and wait for the Lord. Now before that, he navigates and talks about some of the trials that he's had to face. Trials like dealing with intense fear of many different kinds. Trials of the ominous threat of attack by those out to get him. In David's case, that was a military attack. But for our situations, that could be character assassination, gossip, belittling words or comments, cutthroat neighbors or co-workers. David writes in Psalm 27 about being surrounded by trouble feeling as if God has abandoned him. He writes, theoretically at least, about being rejected by his own parents, by the people who are supposed to love him the most. And he writes about oppression from an individual perspective and culturally. And yet, as he runs through that gauntlet of trials, he ends with verse 14. He ends by 
commanding by encouraging us to wait on God, to wait on the person of God and not just for the blessings of God to resolve our problems, to wait on God when everything inside us wants to run away from God and toward anything, whether sin or something, some other idol, that will offer us temporary relief, even if it offers us or brings us more trouble in the long run. He talks about being strong because strength is going to be needed to get through these trials. Not a muscular strength, but a spiritual, emotional, and mental strength. And he talks about taking heart or being courageous because courage is going to be needed to get through the trials that we face. Courage, which is doing the common in uncommon situations. And so... By the end of the message this morning, it's my hope that we'll get more of a clearer understanding of what it exactly means to wait on God. What does that look like for us on a Monday, on a Thursday, on a Saturday? It's my hope that we'll see that waiting is a part of life that God has woven into the very fabric and blueprints of who we are and, and of what life is. That waiting, in general, is something not to be avoided but to be embraced. That waiting on God can be a holy endeavor for him. That waiting on God can be an authentic act of worship to him. And it can also be a heroic display of genuine faith in God that is more important to him than any mountain we can climb or any championship that we can win. What I'd like to do now is talk about a couple of the people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament who have also had to wait on God so that we can hopefully start to see the people in the Bible as real flesh and blood, three-dimensional people who, who are not just biblical superstars of the faith because they're in the Bible, but they're just regular, normal people through whom God did great things. So let's talk about Noah and his family for a second. Scholars estimate that after God told Noah to start building the ark, that it took approximately 50 to 100 years for him to finish the ark. So after God said, I'm going to bring this great flood of rain from the sky and water up from the deep springs of the earth, after God told Noah that and he said, you better start building this boat, it didn't happen the next day or the next week. It didn't happen the next month, the next year, or even the next decade. But Noah had to wait and his family had to wait 50 to 100 years for God to finish what he started. And so while Noah and his family on one side of the coin were waiting on God in their faith in him, on the other side of the coin, they were waiting on God by building the ark. Their waiting was active. It wasn't passive. They had to deal over time with the ridicule of neighbors and other people saying, hey, how's that boat project going? Hey, when's this God of yours going to send this great judgment and this great flood? I'm sure Noah and his family at many times said, what is the point of this? Everything has been going on as it always has been, season after season, year after year. People are married and being given in marriage. Why should we keep building this ark? They could have stopped but they didn't. They continued to wait on Lord, the Lord actively and thank the Lord they did. Think also of Noah and his family. Once they got on the ark, they were on the ark for approximately 370 days, 40 days as the waters came down and as the waters flooded from up beneath the earth. At some point, they must have said to themselves, can this, can this ark, can this boat really protect us 
from God's aquatic judgment. We're not boat builders. He gave us instructions on how to build this boat, but how do we know that we've done a good job? It's desolation around us. Everything's been destroyed. Everything we know, our homes, our communities, our businesses, our neighbors, everything is gone. Can we ever pick up the pieces from this tragedy? I'm sure they must have doubted. I'm sure they must have wondered if life would ever be able to begin again for them. But eventually the waters receded. They waited on God. They didn't jump ship. They didn't bail. They waited on God. And God helped them to start over. You think about Abraham and Sarah who waited on God for 25 years after God promised this childless couple that they would have a son. They had to wait a quarter of a century for God to fulfill that promise. The Bible even records that at one point Sarah laughs at the preposterousness of God being able to fulfill his promise. They were well beyond the child-rearing years. And the Bible even records that they, you know, sinfully tried to take matters into their own hands by having Abraham sleep with um, Hagar, Sarah's maid. And that caused a lot of trouble. They, for a time, didn't wait on God. But eventually, they continued to put their faith in God. They continued to actively wait on him. And God provided Isaac. You think about Moses' parents. I didn't even know their names until I really started working on this message. But Moses' parents' names, sure enough, Amram and Joshebed. They waited for three months after Moses was born, hiding him out in their home after the Egyptian pharaoh gave the command for all the Hebrew baby boys to be thrown into the Nile River and killed. Imagine how tense and anxious it must have been for them to be protecting their baby boy, to hear the screams and the cries of their Hebrew neighbors as they lost their baby boys, as every knock on the door to their little house in Egypt, they must have thought, are, are, are these the Egyptian soldiers coming in to take our son? When is our little boy going to be next? They had to wait anxiously on God, hoping for some kind of solution from him that wasn't ever promised. And then even when they finally realized that they couldn't protect him any longer, they couldn't keep his identity safe, they put him in a little wicker basket covered and, and, and coated with tar and pitch, and they sent it and released it down the Nile River, not knowing if the currents or the water or the waves or the crocodiles or some other predator would get him. They literally had no more control, no more influence, at least in an earthly sense, over their son's life. And yet they must have had some faith in God because they sent their daughter Miriam ahead to see what would happen to Moses and the wicker basket. And she ran back with the great news eventually that one of Pharaoh's daughters scooped up Moses and was going to take care of him. You think about the Israelites who waited on God for 400 years to deliver them from slavery. Slavery where they're making bricks every day for the Egyptian tyrants. That's almost twice as long as the United States has been a nation. That the Hebrew people were slaves and were oppressed and they were crying out to God day and night. And they had to wait on him to deliver them. They didn't gather all of their brick-making tools and lead some kind of revolution. They waited on God. They continued, even though they grumbled and complained at times, they continued to associate themselves with the God of Israel, with Yahweh. And on the other hand, they continued to the best of their ability to make the bricks that the Egyptians were forcing them to make. 
You think about David, who after he was anointed king by Samuel, had to wait approximately 15 years to actually ascend the throne. And during that time, part of it, he was being chased by the current king, Saul, who was after David's life. I'm sure there were times as David was hiding out in a cave where he must have said, Father, God, Lord, is there any way for you not even just to get me on the throne, not even just to fulfill your promise, but can you even save my life here? Can you finish what you started when Samuel anointed me with oil so many years ago? I'm sure that thought crossed David's mind. And yet, he continued to wait on God, and eventually he certainly became king. You think about Hannah, who waited on God for many years for her son Samuel to be born. And she had to deal with some difficult, she had to deal with her husband's other wife, irritating her and and making fun of her and antagonizing her over her childlessness to the point where she couldn't eat and couldn't sleep. And yet she continued to go to the temple. She continued to cry out to God and to wait on him to provide what she so, so much desired a son. You think about in the New Testament, Simeon and the prophetess Anna. Simeon was promised that his earthly life wouldn't end before he saw before he laid eyes on the Lord's Messiah, on the Savior. And eventually he did. The prophetess Anna was a widow for many years, and she stayed at the temple, Luke says, night and day worshiping and praising God, and she too was blessed to see the Lord's Messiah. She had to wait many decades for this, many decades as a widow. You think about the three Marys and John who waited at the foot of the cross, as Jesus hung their master, their savior, their friend, Mary's son, hung there bleeding, suffering for them, as they watched him die and carry the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders, they also waited, knowing that at any moment, because they were standing so close to the cross, they could be next, because they weren't scared to associate themselves with this newly convicted criminal. You think about The rest of Jesus' disciples, who after he died and was buried, for those three days they were waiting in a locked room in Jerusalem, scared out of their minds, thinking to themselves, is this really how it ends? Is this really what we left everything to follow Jesus for? They hadn't understood all that Jesus had taught them, but they were waiting in that locked room for three days, hoping, I think, for God to do something, for God to to come up with some kind of plan to fix what had just happened. And sure enough, Jesus appeared to them, risen. The tomb was empty. So I hope you see, friends, that there's, just from those few characters and people in the Bible, there's this constant theme and thread running throughout the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation about God desiring us to wait on him through trials and storms. Let's think about for a moment some of the trials and storms that we face that God wants us to wait on him through. Things like waiting to be reconciled with a grieved friend, family member, or even teenager or older adult child. A strained or sore relationship with friends, neighbors, or coworkers. Physical or emotional healing from atrocities and crimes committed against us many years ago. Perhaps we, like some of the biblical people, are waiting on God to have a child. And we've been waiting for many years. 
Perhaps we're desiring to be married. Perhaps we're being bullied or facing an emotional illness like clinical depression or some other kind of physical disability or difficulty. Perhaps we're going through a, uh, an impending bankruptcy or home foreclosure where we realize that quickly the standard of living we've grown used to is going to be ending. Perhaps we're searching for another job or a career advancement, promotion, or raise. Perhaps we have a strained teacher, student, or boss, supervisor, employee relationship. Perhaps we're in an unhealthy marriage that doesn't show any hope of getting better. Perhaps we're just going through some of the different parenting stages that don't seem like they'll ever end. Maybe we're going through a drug or alcohol or other addiction, or maybe, maybe we're just feeling stuck. We're just feeling painted into a corner and we're feeling like we have no means of getting ourselves out of it. We have no way of offering ourselves a fresh change or a new start. There are these types of situations and many others that God allows us to go through. Some of them are our own fault and some of them are not our own fault. But God wants us to wait on him during those trials. So before we before I close this message by going through some of the different verses in the Bible that talk about waiting on God, I want to frame it up a little bit, what this looks like, this waiting on God. The, the first characteristic, as I have read through Scripture, is that waiting on God, part of it is continuing to believe in our minds and hearts all that the Bible has taught us about who God is. So we've been to the, the carnivals, or the fun houses where those mirrors are distorted and we look at ourselves and no one you know, calls 911 or calls the doctor and says, oh my goodness, you know, my skull is you know, larger than the rest of my body or my legs are six inches tall. Because we realize looking into that mirror that it's not an accurate mirror. It doesn't give us an accurate reflection of what we really look like. There's something wrong with the mirror. And two, I think sometimes we don't realize that similarly, our life circumstances can oftentimes give us a distorted view of what God is like and who he is. And so my hope is that as we continue to wait on God, we won't allow the circumstances of our lives to tell us who God is. We'll try to let the word of God tell us who God is. So that's part of waiting on God. Secondly, I think waiting on God is simply continuing to obey God in the, the mundane and routine details of our lives, to show through our actions that we really love him and that we lo are trying to love all others. I remember this quote um, that was framed in, in one of the, uh, a friend's house, and it said, prayer is asking for rain. Faith is carrying an umbrella. And so I think as we're waiting on God, our job is to say, how can we live today how can we show through our practical actions that what is in the Bible is true? How can we live out our faith that we believe that Jesus really is coming back? How can we live out our faith in Christ and really forgive our neighbors? How can I really show the love of Jesus to my spouse and children, to my coworkers, to the people at the grocery store, at, at restaurants, and so forth? If we ask ourselves that question and strive to do that, that's part of waiting on God. And finally, I think waiting on God looks like continuing to trust that our current suffering is only temporary. That even if the worst case scenario 
our worst fears were to happen, if, if every single moment of our earthly existence were, were as bad as it could be, if, if we suffered from the womb to the tomb, even if that were to happen, that we would continue to trust that once this earthly life is over, what God talks about in Revelation is true, that he will personally, face to face, wipe every tear from our eyes, that we will see him, that he will be our God and we will be his people, that he will personally teach us about himself and you won't have to listen to preachers anymore. That he is going to meet us and bring us to where he is. That someday Jesus is going to come back and bring us to his kingdom in heaven where he has been preparing a place for us to dwell with him forever if we've surrendered our lives to him. And so... I want you to to have that as the backdrop as I read some of these verses of Scripture that talk about waiting on God. And let's see what we learn about this. Let's try and kind of put flesh on this skeleton of this idea of waiting on God. It's been a blessing to me as I've prepared the message, and I hope it is for you as well. So in Job chapter 14, Job, after his children have died in a terrible natural disaster, after he's lost his business, his livelihood, all of his livestock, all of his servants, even as he's lost his physical health, and he is probably as physically deformed as someone can be, just oozing sores, painful, nasty welts all over his body. After all of that has happened to him, listen to what he says. If a person dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, God, I will wait for my renewal to come. I will wait for my healing. I will wait for you to turn this boat around. You will call, Lord, and I will answer you. You will long for this creature your hands have made. He realizes that God still wants him, even though by the world's standards he's a failure even though physically he is probably, like I said, as, as unpleasant to look at as anyone can be. He believes that God still longs for him. He says, surely then you will count my steps, God. You will not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed in a bag, and you will cover over my sin. In the fifth psalm, it says, In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. So there's part of that waiting on God is that we go to him. We continue to go to him with our requests, trusting that he does hear us. Psalm 37 says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. So part of that waiting on God is for us to slow down and to be still to stop moving around so much and to just focus on God. Psalm 37, verse 34, later on, it says, wait for the Lord and keep his way. And that's a recurring theme, a recurring characteristic of waiting on God is continued obedience, even when it's hard. Think about Noah on that giant ark, year after year, nailing in the boards, facing the ridicule of neighbors, facing the doubts that the rain and the flood will never come, but he continued to do it. God calls us to nothing less. Psalm 119, 
The writer says, the wicked are waiting to destroy me, but while they're waiting to harm me, I will ponder your statutes, your laws, your word, God. Think about that. He talks about while people are out to harm me, I'm not, my first, my first reaction is not to try and escape or evade them. It's to just think about God and about his word and his law. Wow. Later on, Psalm 119, I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands while the psalmist is waiting. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. The psalmist there was putting his hope not in his own dreams, not in his own plans or ideas or hopes, but putting his hope in God's word, what God has said. Proverbs chapter 20, do not say I'll pay you back for this wrong, but wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. So there are times where we want to get revenge. There are times when another party deserves us to get revenge. And yet God wants us to let him be the one to get the revenge. He wants us to wait on him to make right the wrong that was done to us. Isaiah chapter 26, he says, yes, Lord, Walking in the way of your laws, obeying you, we wait for you. Your name and your renown, your fame, are the desire of our hearts. So there's another characteristic of waiting on God, is we ask God to help us get to the point where we desire his identity and his character and his, his name to be known by the people around us and all over the earth. That we desire him to be known more than we desire anything else in the world. I can't say that. I, I'm not even sure if I can say that, that God's name and renown being spread cracks my top ten on a daily basis. But while we're waiting, I think God wants us to ask him, to beg him, to cultivate us and develop us to get to that point where all we care about is people coming to know and love him couple more verses and then I'll close. Lamentations chapter 3. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. To wait quietly to calm our hearts and to turn off some of the noisy aspects of our lives. Hosea chapter 12. You must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. There's another characteristic of waiting on God. It's maintaining love and justice. It's looking around at our, at our homes and our neighborhoods and around the world and saying, what areas of the world do not look like the kingdom of God? You can probably identify a billion of them. And then it's to say, okay, God, let's you and me start tackling one of these. Let's start doing something about it. Now, today, let's shine our light on that dark corner or that dark corner. Let's clean those cobwebs out of that corner or out of that rafter. Looking at the places around the world where people are suffering, where people don't know how much God loves them, where people are being oppressed institutionally or individually and saying, I'm not going to settle for this anymore. This breaks God's heart. It breaks mine. I'm doing something about it now. Titus chapter 2, 
For the grace of God, the unearnable grace of God that brings salvation, forgiveness of sins, and everlasting life in heaven forever, this has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say, and this is another characteristic of waiting on God, God's grace teaches us to say, while we're waiting, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to purchase us back from sin and death and from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And finally, James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming, until Jesus' return. Be patient. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient the farmer is for the autumn and spring rains. Waiting on God. Let me finally conclude by giving us uh, some good news about that stranded party on Elephant Island. The 22 crew of the ship Endurance back in 1916, they waited alone, stranded on Elephant Island on a desolate Arctic tundra for over four months. During that time, they endured mind-numbing monotony, bitter cold, various physical ailments, a scarcity of supplies, irritating companionship, and the constant fight to cling to a fleeting hope. As the weeks extended well beyond their optimistic initial forecast, crew leader Frank Wilde established and maintained routines and activities for the men waiting to relieve the tedium. First, a permanent lookout was kept for the arrival of the rescue ship. There was always someone watching, just standing there, scanning the horizon. Cooking and housekeeping rotations were established. There were hunting trips for seal and penguin because the rest of their food had run out. Concerts were even held on Saturdays. Anniversaries with loved ones back in England were celebrated. But there were still growing feelings of despondency and fear as time passed with no sign of the ship. The toes on one of the sailor's left foot became gangrenous from frostbite and had to be surgically removed. Nevertheless, As they waited, the rescue did arrive on August 30th, 1916. They remembered the words of their captain when he left four months earlier. He said, I will return. I will come back for you. And if there is anything I can do about it, not one of you will die. All of you will get home. Every person survived when Blackburn returned. Their wait for rescue was not in vain. And they, the 22 who waited were as much heroes for their heroic waiting as the other men were for their heroic rescue. And so my hope is that as we are waiting for the Lord to deliver us from earthly situations, and as we are waiting on the Lord, big picture, just to deliver us to heaven finally someday, that we will continue to wait on him the way these biblical believers waited on him as well, continuing to trust in who God says he is through his word, continuing to obey God in the mundane daily activities of our lives and continuing to trust that our current suffering, no matter how bad it gets, is only temporary. Please pray with me. Holy God, I thank you so much 
Thank you so much for blessing all of us to be here this morning to worship you, to sing praises to your name, to to hear verses from your word, to hopefully be encouraged that you have not abandoned us in whatever we are facing or will face in the future. God, thank you so much that there's hope because your son died on the cross and returned to life three days later. Like David said, the tomb is empty. And if you can conquer death, you can help us through any challenge, any hurdle, any uphill battle that we are facing. So God, help us to believe that. Help us to actively wait for you and to know as we look back on those who have gone before us, help us to know with all our hearts that you are preparing a place for us, Jesus. If we've surrendered to you and said yes to you, if we've asked you to forgive us of our sins and be in charge of our lives, that you are preparing a place for us and you are coming back very soon to bring us home forever. We pray this in your name, Savior. Amen.